Please be seated. Thank you. God, oops. Thank you. Got it. Amen. Friends, I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 19. We've been thinking about what it means to love our city compassionately and to serve our city by serving the Lord first and then out of our service to the Lord, putting Him number one, finding opportunities then to, to serve our city. And today we're talking about reaching the city. Now I've sprinkled in a few references here and there about our care for the marginalized and, and poor in our region, our ministries of justice and compassion and civic involvement. So we've made some references to local mission, and the work that's happening there, our, our jail ministry. We just heard from Karen about 110 backpacks for elementary and middle schoolers in need. We've launched the ESL class, uh, I believe it was last week. But I checked in with Cheryl, uh, my wife, uh, who is my uh, great partner and supporter and a very wise woman, and speaks directly to me. I said, hey, how is this sermon series going so far? And she said, it's, it's going great, but you know what needs happening, like a little uh, advice to a cook? It needs a little spice. It needs some practical application. What does it really look like uh, to, to love the city or to serve the city? And I thought that was extraordinarily helpful. And so by way of giving you some ideas of that, let me just start with the application up front. What would it look like from this past week? It might look like when you're checking out at Harris Teeter, taking a moment to ask the clerk, how's your day going? How much longer do you have on your shift? You'd be amazed how often the clerks at grocery stores are ignored by their customers to have someone ask how they're doing and and specifically, how much longer do they have to work? What opportunity that might open up to bless them, to love on them. It might be a smile to a perfect stranger at Home Depot when you're in the plumbing aisle for the third time in one day trying to find the right kind of connector for a new uh, commode. Is that more appropriate to say than the other word? It might be the prayer walk that we go on next week where we're just going to gather and hopefully we'll have nice weather, we'll have balloons for the kids and we just walk and have an opportunity to pray and bless. And I see neighbors in my neighborhood walking just after sundown when it cools off, they're walking the neighborhood in pairs or whole families. What a great opportunity for you to step outside your doors and to pray for your neighbors that you walk by. These are ways that you can love on folks. Linda Johnson mentioned every time she has to stop behind a school bus on the way to work, you know how, I'm sure if you're in a hurry, that can be a little irritating, that long wait with the stop sign. She says she takes that as an opportunity to pray for every child on the bus. What a beautiful example. Here's one more. On Monday night, Cub Scouts, Pack 618 that we've supported for years, had their first meeting they added the largest number of new Cub Scouts the pack has ever seen. 35 new Cub Scouts have joined our pack. That's 35 boys with their parents, because a parent's required to be here on campus, uh, one or two parents or more, on our campus every Monday night 
who would otherwise probably not come to our church. What might it be to love and serve and reach in these practical ways? Not extraordinary, just ordinary ways of reaching out. Well, in today's text, in Acts chapter 19, we have the end of the New Testament description of reaching a city for Christ. And the most extraordinary things happen in the midst of reaching the city. So let's follow along. Acts chapter 19, I'll just read verses 1 to 20. And you'll see in your bulletin a handy-dandy outline if you'd like to take notes during the message. Listen now to God's word. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, No. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some, be, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyreus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to evoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? The man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they all fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, <clears throat> And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have here in Acts chapter 19 the New Testament pattern, the blueprint for how to reach a city for Christ. And Dr. Luke writes in verse 20, 
the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's my prime directive. To proclaim the word of God. And then to empower you, to equip you by the power and work of the Holy Spirit to go out into our world as the sent ones. Now some might say and even have said, well, we're not in a very good place to see a a church grow in reaching the city. They say, yeah, no, no, not, not Germantown. That's a little too urban, whatever that means. They say, no, move further out, further away from the big cities. That's where a church can grow. And I say to them, hogwash. That's absolutely ridiculous and nonsense. Because we have here Exhibit E, the city of Ephesus, a city, if there ever was, known as the Jewel of Asia Minor, home of the great temple of Armatus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a bastion of paganism, sorcery, worldliness, and economic power. And this surely was not a place that would be fertile ground for a church to grow, so say some today. There were great barriers to the gospel in this place, but they were no match for the power of the Holy Spirit. And through teaching and preaching and demonstrating the power, this city was reached mightily. Paul writes uh, to the church in Corinth, another church that he planted, chapter 16, verse 9. He says, A wide door for effective work has opened to me in Ephesus, and there are a great number of adversaries who oppose me. Catch that. In, In the same breath, he says, A great door has opened to me to reach the city of Ephesus. Ephesus. And at the same time, there are many of those who oppose me. They want to shut that door and close and lock that gate. And yet it was in Ephesus, this great city, that Paul invested three years of his life, longer than any stop that he went on on any of his other mission trips. Three years of investment of time and commitment to prayer and the ministry of the word. And all of that preceded a wave of conversions and discipleship and great social change for the better. And I pause at verse 20. You can read on the rest of the chapter and see that that, that social change uh, came with a cost. There were even riots in the streets because of Paul's work. So my friends, we have here the New Testament plan for a church to reach a city. We need to know it, and we need to do it. That's why it's critical that we listen up today, please. Let's begin with verse 1. It says that Paul arrives, he's at the outskirts of the city, and there Paul finds 12 guys described as disciples. That's great, right? He's already got 12. 12 disciples ready to go. Our mission at Nielsville is to be and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And they're ready to go, right? Wrong. They are disciples, yes, but they are disciples of John the Baptist, who taught them about repentance, 
and told them something of what God was going to do in fulfilling the promise of a coming Messiah. But not only had they not received the Holy Spirit, which is a prerequisite for being a true disciple of Jesus Christ, they hadn't even heard of him. So imagine saying, well, look, we have all these people that are disciples, and yet there's no power. As disciples of John the Baptist, that they knew of this Messiah King who was promised, but they didn't know until Paul taught them that Jesus had come, and he had fulfilled everything. And so it is into his name that they were baptized by Paul. And, and what happens? It says that they had their own mini Pentecost right there. Paul teaches them. He baptizes them. He, he lays hands on them to pray. And the Holy Spirit came in such a powerful way that it says they began to speak in tongues, that is, in utterances in other languages, and they began to prophesy, they began to praise God, and they were experiencing an extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit. So point number one, numero uno in our outline, for the pattern of a new test, in the New Testament of reaching a city, God's servants are radicalized. God's servants are radicalized. And I know that word Radical, radicalization has quite a negative connotation, especially with regard to the clash of societies we have today, worldview, in, in light of what happened last night in New York City. But consider the kind of radicalization these men were going through as disciples. Does Jesus not call us as his followers to a radical form of love? Does he not call us as disciples to a radical form of service? Does he not urge us to share his urgency for the radical reconciliation of the world to God? As believers, disciples of Jesus Christ, when we come to church we ought to think, oh, I wish, I wish my non-Christian friend could be here today to hear Ji Young sing that prayer. Friends, we are in a culture where that is a radical notion to wish or to hope that someone who believes and thinks a different way could come and be reached and reasoned with and loved in this kind of way. It's, it's not something that is tolerated in our society. The other day, John and I were leaving to go play tennis and received a call from one of our members and put him on speakerphone so I could drive somewhat safely. And this uh, friend of our church shared that uh, some Jehovah Witnesses had stopped by uh, his home. And he spoke with them briefly, but uh, he didn't know exactly what to say or, or how to handle it. He wanted to check in with me. And we talked for, for a few minutes and I finished the call. And then John then asked me, Dad, why don't we do door-to-door -door evangelism? Here we're, we're saying about this is the only hope in the world. I, I, I preach these things. So my 12-year-old says, Dad, why aren't we doing door-to-door -door evangelism? I had no good answer for him. Now sure, I could say, well, we don't do 
door-to-door evangelism because it's not that effective and people get kind of annoyed and you, know, you see these other groups that do it and it's a little pushy, but does that answer really hold water? We say this is the hope of the world. You see, in order for us to reach the city, we need to train up and teach disciples who by prayer, by the work of the Spirit, are filled with God's presence and are radicalized. Folks, this is why cultural Christianity is fading away. There was a day and age when you would join a church because that's what good uh, Americans did. You would be proud to say, I'm an Episcopalian, or I am a Presbyterian, or I am a member of First Methodist Church, USA. Those days of cultural Christianity are long behind us now. And the new day is dawn. Where to be a follower of Christ means we must take a stand, a radical stand, to say that we believe in Jesus. These 12 men experienced radical transformation. They had tears of, of joy extolling God's name in different languages. They had this confirmation from the Spirit that they were truly and utterly and completely saved by the Lord. And you know what? They couldn't stop talking about Jesus from that point on. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 7, verse 37, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. If you believe in me, rivers of living water will flow from within you. And in case we miss what he's talking about, John adds, Jesus was talking about the Spirit. So God's servants were radicalized. And number two, God's word was proclaimed. Paul did his thing. Did the same thing wherever he went. Peter before him did the same thing. He started in a synagogue. He started with his peeps, with the Jewish people. And it says that he boldly proclaimed the kingdom of God with reasoning and persuasion for three months. And the message was, the same as Jesus, the kingdom of God. The message would go something like this. The kingdom of God is close at hand. Our king is here, our redeemer king. His name is Yeshua. He has fulfilled all the promises of our holy scripture Torah. He is God's yes to all of those promises, come and bow down before your king. And Paul would reason with them out of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the message of the kingdom of God. You see, you get to the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, when Paul is in house arrest. And it says, even under house arrest in Rome, hoping to get to Spain, which he never makes it there, it says, even under house arrest, you know what Paul was doing? Preaching the kingdom of God boldly, confidently, without any shame. And how'd it go? Not great. The three months of preaching did not go so well. Luke records that there were a number of, of Jews there. Imagine these were 
perhaps leaders in that community that were stubborn and continued in their unbelief. And worse, they began to attack and talk smack about those who were pursuing the way of Yeshua, the way of the Messiah, Jesus. Amazing to think that someone as astute as Paul who could open the scriptures and explain to them how he was fulfilling all of the promises of God's holy word, and yet it says they were stubborn in their unbelief, and he was rejected. And so what did Paul do? He followed the next step of his pattern. He left. After three months and their unwillingness to really hear what he was saying, it says that he walked away. Their hearts were not softened to the extraordinary work of God. And so Paul moved on. And where did he go? Did he leave the city? No. It says he went further into the city. How do we know that? Because the place, this hall, was further into, literally, in the city. And the city that was not religious, that was steeped in all these pagan rituals and, and worldliness, Paul goes in and Luke writes that he rented a hall, a place of learning. We would consider it a school, maybe a place where you'd hear a TED Talk. And that's where he talked and preached and reasoned with folks for two years. Now we know from extra-biblical historical uh, information about what was happening at this time, Folks would take a siesta, which we don't have to these days, especially in North America with air conditioning, but from about 11 o'clock in the morning, folks would break from work because it got to be so hot. So from about 11 o'clock till about 4 in the afternoon, it was siesta time. Sure, some would take a nap, but others would do other things. They would socialize with each other. They'd check in. They'd have a meal. And during that period of time, it says that Paul would teach and preach to anyone and anybody who'd come to listen about the way of Jesus. So get this, two years, 52 weeks a year, six days a week, five hours a day, Paul rented, he rented this hall, and he taught and preached and reasoned with Gentiles. That's 3,120 hours of talking. And I'm already losing my voice. It's only second service. What an investment and personal toll on Paul. Years later, years later, when Paul writes to the church that he planted in Ephesus, long past the time they were in a hall when it was a for real church of people, of converted Jews and Gentiles, he writes this in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 to his letter to the Ephesians. He asked them to pray right at the end of his letter. And what's he asked for prayer? That words may be given to me to open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare as I ought to speak. That's incredibly inspiring and humbling to me. For the incredible success that Paul had, with quotes around that, for see a church established in such a preeminent city as Ephesus, and he writes to them years later after the, the way of Jesus is spreading over the, all the known world. And his closing prayer is not, may I have a blessed retirement. His prayer is that 
the Lord would give me words to open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel as an ambassador in chains. What an investment. This happened through the investment of prayer and the ministry of the word. And even after all this flourishing of his ministry, that's still his prayer to this point. Now notice so far in this message that there's not a hint of some of the things that we in modern day church value as the blueprint or the plan to reach a city. There's nothing here about having a fancier facility. There's sure they would sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord, but they were often recited without any musical accompaniment. There's nothing about having great programs. It was all about the word and prayer and the spirit moving these people out. That leads to point number three. God's power is demonstrated. Verses 11 to 17, God's power is demonstrated. Extraordinary miracles of healing sickness and diseases and evil spirits started to happen all over. People touch Paul and they're healed. Cloth touches Paul and they take it to another place and touch a sick person and they're healed. Incredible. Now we see hankies being sold by televangelists and con artists for money. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the pure 110 proof movement of the Spirit of God to bring healing and restoration into people's lives. Does the Spirit still heal today? Amen. Yes. In fact, a greater healing than the body is a cleansing of one's soul. A cancer-filled body in remission is cause for celebration. We say, praise God, this person is in remission. But the greater work is the work of redemption. That a sinner who wants to have nothing to do with God is not a seeker after God, is a seeker after their own selfish desires, and yet God woos them and grabs hold of their heart and pulls them to himself and won't let go. And that person's life and that family and that system and that structure and that community are transformed. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. These people are seeing the pure version of it actual healing, actual exorcisms happening through the power of God. And along come the sons of Sceva. Sounds like a terrible heavy metal band name. But these guys are out there. They are sons of a high priest named Sceva, and they are traveling around promising exorcism of demons and and healing of disease, and, and maybe some of those things that they thought were a demon were actually a disease. And we don't know if they were simply and purely con artists, or if they were dabbling in the magic arts. But all they really care about is the bottom line. And the bottom line is, where's the action at? And they hear about Paul, and they hear about and see the effects of this wonder-working power, and they think, let's get a piece of that action. And so they start to pray over people, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And what happens? A man literally possessed by an evil spirit says, Oh, I know Jesus. And I'm familiar with Paul, but who are you? And he beats the snot out of them. And that's a little funny, terrifying. Imagine if you could see that. 
It's pretty sad that these fellows lost their shirt and much more. But there's an important principle to keep in mind. When we are properly reaching the city for Christ, radicalizing believers to passionately live and engage in the city, and preaching boldly the word of God and working for social justice and making a difference in our city, the evil one, listen, the evil one always imitates and tries to mimic the good work of the church in order to persuade and mislead people. It always happens, and it's happening here. Paul knew this, and in fact included in Ephesians, again, his letter to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he said, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So friends, if we're going to reach the city for Christ and train up people to be true disciples of Jesus, radicalize to serve and to love and to bless this city, and if we go out and we start meddling around in areas where there are hot spots of evil work and strongholds, we cannot be naive to think that there is not also a degree of spiritual warfare that we'll engage in. Matthew 16, 8, 18, Jesus confirms that through Peter the church will begin, will, will begin and he writes, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How does that happen? It happens only by the work of God. And that leads to point number four. God's people are transformed. God's people are transformed. Notice what happened right after this incident. The gates of hell are broken open. The gates aren't uh, offensive weapons. They are defensive. And Jesus says, there's no gate that's going to withstand the force of my power in the church. All those gates are going to be broken open. And that's what's happening in Ephesians. Things are breaking open. And as I said, you read on and you'll see about riots happening in the streets because of Paul's ministry. Now notice verse 17. It says, This became known to all the residents of the city, and fear fell upon all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It's not exactly what we're going for at Nielsville. We're not really going for everyone to be freaked out in Germantown, but Jesus' name lifted on high for sure. But then look at what happened next. It says, People start confessing, listen, and divulging their wicked, wicked practices. And who's doing the confessing and divulging? Verse 18, who is it? It's believers. Friends, we need to pray for revival, but every great revival in the church has always started with the church. Before reaching the city and doing all these things, it's the church that needs transformation. What were these people into? It says they were believers. They had been under Paul's teaching. And yet it says that they were also somehow mixed up in witchcraft and magic arts. Somehow they justified in their own minds that they could both be a follower of Jesus and get mixed up with this kind of junk. Folks, we need to be serious about this stuff. It's worth thinking about. Especially with Halloween coming up. Especially with Halloween coming up and approaching. 
Do your non-Christian neighbors see you as living any way, every way, the way that all of our neighbors do? Or in a different way? I encourage you to pray even today, Lord, how can I be a witness to my neighbors to reach them? Well, these believers took it seriously. They took it so seriously that it says they collected all this stuff and they burned it. I've never seen a book burning, thankfully. When I see black and white images of that or even from the early 80s, it's usually uh, CDs or records or books of the bad stuff. These are people clearing out their own homes, 50,000 uh, silver pieces worth of their valuables, and they said, we've been transformed. Get rid of it. Friends, to reach the city, it is essential we cultivate, listen, a deep repentance in his presence, a growing reliance on his power, an unquenchable passion for his renown, whatever the cost. As a result of this, this blueprint, this plan being built upon, being reached, a raising up of radically committed disciples, boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, demonstrating God's power through the church and the people of God being transformed, those four things, the city was reached. What will it look like for the gospel reach out of this church and other churches like ours in this area to have a profound impact in Upper Montgomery County? What will it look like? In San Francisco, in the Tenderloin District, I prayed with male prostitutes on the street. And Cheryl served the homeless. When we were in Los Angeles and Oakland, we sought for racial reconciliation, a work that needs to be renewed today because we've lost so much ground that was gained. In Minneapolis, over nine years, we tried to reach the city through prayer. We would go and pray for strip clubs and, and bookstores to, to fall apart. We helped start a Somali church. And we helped to support a mobile loaves and fishes program, literally a, a soup kitchen on wheels. But what does that look like here? When most everyone seems to be doing just fine on the surface. We've not seen it yet. We have not seen what the power of the Spirit can do in our town. There are still strongholds that need to be broken. There are yet more extraordinary things to happen and to come in reaching the city for Christ. The power is in the blood and in knowing Christ. The power is in the outpouring of the Spirit of God. The power to convert. The power to redeem. The power to save. The power to break down strongholds. The power to heal. The power to love. The power to transform. Wonder-working power. And so the only way that power comes is by prayer. Will you join me in prayer right now? Oh God, please work your wonder-working power in our lives, in the life of our church, in the life of your people. Radicalize us, Lord. Fire us up. Give us boldness, Lord, not just for 
half an hour on a Sunday, but during the week to speak words of truth in the midst of so many lies. Enable us, Lord, to be a different kind of people, especially when this heightened awareness of the politics and the, the social unrest around us. May we be your salt and light. And may your word continue to increase and prevail. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand.